What a marvelous psalm that is, speaking of the cleansing of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ so many years before Christ actually shed his blood. Just uh, a wonderful anticipation. Well, let's uh, turn in the Belgic Confession, or sorry, in the Canons of Dort, in the Book of Forms and Prayers, you'll find that on page 267. In the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, you'll find it on page 903. So second main point of doctrine, the first point of doctrine had to do with election and reprobation. This one has to do with the death of Christ and the redemption of humans through his death. And I want to read Articles 1 through 4 of the second main point of doctrine. Page 267, page 903. Article 1, the punishment which God's justice requires. God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. His justice requires, as He has revealed Himself in the Word, that the sins we have committed against His infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. Article 2, the satisfaction made by Christ. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God in His boundless mercy has given us a guarantee given us as a guarantee His only begotten Son, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross, in order that He might give satisfaction for us. Article 3, the infinite value of Christ's death. This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Article 4, reasons for this infinite value. This death is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered it is, as was necessary to be our Savior, not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Another reason is that this death was accompanied by the experience of God's anger and curse, which we by our sins had fully deserved. And then if you turn to the Word of God, to the Gospel according to Isaiah, or the prophecy of Isaiah, but some have called it the gospel of Isaiah because of its clear prophecies of the coming Lord Jesus. So the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 52, begin at verse 13. You'll find that on page 779. Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred 
beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thus far the reading of God's Word, and our focus this evening will be on verses 4 through 6. Well, over the past number of weeks, we have been in the heavenlies before the foundation of the world. We've been thinking about God's eternal decree by which He chose some out of the whole human race who would share in the fellowship of Him and the Son and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. We were speaking about the doctrine of election, God's choosing some to be His very own. And having chosen some to be His very own, we also discussed the doctrine of reprobation, that there were some that God left to themselves, left to themselves in their sin, who would then, 
of course, bear the judgment of God and alienation from the fellowship of God rather than a welcome into the friendship of the triune God. Well, this evening we go from eternity to time. We move from heaven to earth. The Apostle, Paul's, uh, the Apostle Peter rather says in 1 Peter 1 that Christ was foreknown by God from before the foundation of the world and was manifest in these last days. So just as the elect were chosen by the Father, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the chosen one by the Father. And He was chosen for a specific purpose, to be the sacrifice for sin. He was chosen as a lamb without blemish in order to die on behalf of those whom the Father had given to Him in the first place. And so Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. He was manifest in these last days. He came to earth, and He carried out the ministry that the Father had given to Him. And we want to look this evening at the ministry of our Lord Jesus from the fourth servant psalm, uh, song rather of Isaiah. And our introduction to the servant of the Lord, who the New Testament identifies as the Lord Jesus Christ, this servant of the Lord, our introduction to him is not that attractive at all to our sight. If you look at verse 14 of chapter 52, you see that the appearance of the Lord Jesus was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That is, that though Jesus was truly man, it was hard to recognize in him his humanity. He had become so dehumanized because his appearance was so marred. You can see this again in chapter 53, verse 2, where it speaks about the Lord Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him that whatever the cause of it, there was etched into his very existence such anguish and sorrow that it marred his human appearance. And because his appearance was so marred, because he had no beauty or majesty or form, nothing to attract us to him, we found him unattractive. And in our dislike of him, we despised and rejected him uh, the saw, the pro, uh, prophet says. We ignored him. We hid our faces from him. We wanted nothing to do with him because he was so such a non-entity to us because of his human appearance. In fact, the prophet says that we treated him like Job's friends treated Job. Remember Job in his anguish and grief and his sorrow and pain was accused of being guilty of something. That's why God had unleashed his judgments against him. And this is exactly what we thought of Christ. There must have been something that Christ had done to warrant this life and this experience. There must have been something that he had done so that God himself was against him. And so we read in verse 4 that we esteemed him, we considered him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Jesus must have done something wrong, and this is why God was angry with him. And interestingly, we were very wrong in our assessment of the Lord Jesus. 
in the one hand, and we were very right in our assessment of the Lord Jesus on the other hand. Well, how were we wrong? We were wrong because we thought that the maladies that our Lord Jesus was experiencing, the sorrows and the grief that He had, was because of something that He Himself had done. Now, it is true, it's undeniably true, that our Lord Jesus did really experience grief and sorrow. Just look at these verses in verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced. He was crushed. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought His peace, and with His wounds we are healed. So Jesus did really experience these things. It wasn't just appearing to experience them. He really did. He was grieved and sorrowful and full of anguish and distress. But it wasn't because of something he had done. The first person or the third person pronouns remind us that he really did experience them. But the first person pronouns tell us that he experienced them because of us. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. It was our transgressions, our iniquities. It was our wounds that he had carried. So that all the troubles that the Lord Jesus experienced were not because of something that he had done, but it was because of something his people had done. And what was the cause of all of our troubles and difficulties? Well, the prophet tells us in verse 6 that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. It's because of our rebellion against God, first in the garden, and then ever since then we've daily added to our sins. It's because of our judgment, our, our rebellion against God, that all of the maladies and hardships of life come upon us. There was no death before the fall. There was no bereavement. There was no murder. There was no blame shifting before the fall. Everything was idyllic. Everyone lived in harmony with one another. There was complete, unmitigated peace, unalloyed joy. And then when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they unleashed such a torrent of judgment and severity and devastation upon humanity. And that became ours. We have experienced all these things, the griefs and the sorrows, because we all collectively have turned away. But lest you think you can hide in the majority or in the crowd, each one, every one of us has gone our own way. We've been like sheep who've not wanted to follow the shepherd, and we thought that our own ways were better than the ways of our God. And so we have had these griefs and sorrows. They have become ours because of our sins. But now they have become Christ's. Why is that? Well, look at the end of verse 6. It's because the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. If you're to ask why Jesus was a man of sorrows, why he was acquainted with grief. 
It's not because of anything he had done. It's not only simply because of what we had done, but it was because of something his father had done with what we had done. That is, we had sinned against God. We had rebelled. We had brought all these troubles upon ourselves. And now the Lord has taken our sins and has credited them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our troubles are because of our actions. Jesus' troubles are because of God's actions. It was God the Father who had placed our sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was the cause of his great sorrow and grief. For those who like it theological, the term that we use in describing that is imputation. Christ had our sins imputed to him, credited to him. They were ours, but they became as if they were his. Not that he himself became a sinner, not at all. The writer to the Hebrews says that he is holy, separate from sinners, unstained, innocent. So Christ remains innocent, and our sins, by the action of the Father, have been transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is treated as if he himself were responsible for all of our sins. It is an unthinkable thing. If you give it any sort of thought that Christ who had a holy revulsion to anything that even smelt of disobedience to his Father's will should now have our adultery and our lying and our murder and our Sabbath desecration and our blaspheme placed upon him as if they were his own. What humiliation for our Lord Jesus. No wonder he was a man of sorrows. No wonder he was familiar with grief. Who wouldn't be when you're holy and being assigned the sins of the unholy? This is where the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, God made Jesus the sinless one, the innocent one, the unstained one. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Not to be a sinner, but to be sin. That is, to be considered a sinner, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what the prophet is speaking about here is that the Lord Jesus was familiar with sufferings, acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, because he became our substitute. He stood in our place. He traded places with us so that we are treated as he deserves, and he is treated as we deserve. So we were wrong. We were wrong about the Lord Jesus. It wasn't because of anything he had done that he brought, he received such suffering. It was because of what we had done and because of what his Father had done in laying our iniquities upon the Lord Jesus. Not, of course, 
Not, of course, that Jesus resisted it or rebelled against it or was coerced to be responsible as our substitute. No, it was a substitution that he willingly embraced, but it was because of our sins and because of the Father's imputation of our sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we were wrong that he was suffering because of his own troubles, but we were right when we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It is true that God was against the Lord Jesus. It is true that God smote him, afflicted him, struck him, pierced him, crushed him, chastised him, wounded him. And that was because Christ was our penal substitute. So he was our substitute in our place. He stood. But he was our penal substitute. Not only did he take our sins, but he also took the corresponding penalty that our sins deserve. That's where the penal comes in. Substitute, penal substitute. You can think of it this way. If Christ were only our substitute, we would say, in our place he stood. But because he is our penal substitute, we say, in our place condemned he stood. So that Jesus not only takes our sins or not only has our iniquity laid upon him, he also takes the punishment that those iniquities deserve. You see, that's the truth of sin. It isn't just that sin is against God and that God can somehow overlook it or pretend it hasn't happened or feel sorry for us and just ignore it. For God to do that would be for Him to undermine His own justice and His holiness. If if there's sin against God, that sin must be acknowledged and it must be punished. And because it's a sin against God, our sins are are not mere peccadilloes. They're not minor infractions. There's not something you can just uh, ignore or just wipe away like that. They're serious because sin is against a holy and infinite God so that our sin takes on infinite proportions. I mentioned a number of years ago how uh, Thomas Goodwin helped me to see that. He said uh, that you understand the weight of sin not by the extent of the sin, not by the event, sorry, not by the event of the sin, but by the intent of the sin. So adultery is bad, not just because adultery is an event that breaks God's law, but the attitude of adultery is, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway And I just wish, God, you would go and mind your own business. That's the intention of sin. It is always, as the old guys used to say, sin is always deicide. It is always a desire, an expression of our heart's desire that God would go and off himself. We don't want him around. If he would just get out of our lives and mind his own business, if he would just die, we would be happy. That's always the design of sin, even if it never reaches that. 
And that's why sin is so serious. It's an infinite matter, and it deserves infinite, eternal punishment of our souls and bodies in this life and in hell itself. We deserve to be pierced and crushed and punished and wounded. And the marvel of the gospel is that Christ takes these things upon himself. Notice what it says there in verse 4. He has borne our griefs. He has lifted our griefs from us. He has carried our sorrows. Why? Because he's accepted our sins as if they were own. And more than that, he's accepted the punishment that we deserve at the hands of his heavenly Father. It was God the Father whose sword of justice was thrust through our Lord Jesus Christ. The weight of eternal punishment was placed upon the Lord Jesus, and he was crushed underneath it. That's why when he speaks on the cross and the experience of God's wrath, he says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Because he understood that it was the Lord's will to crush him, that this wasn't just death at the hands of Jews who were envious or the hands of Romans who were cruel. No, this this was death at the hands of God. It was God the Father who handed him over, who delivered him up for us all. Because the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was substitutionary, but it was because it was penal substitutionary that he took our sins and he took our punishment as well. And here, my dear brothers and sisters, is our great hope and joy. This is what makes us sing. This is what enables us to get up in the morning each day knowing that Christ has done it all for us. So that look at what the, the, the author says. He was pierced for our transgressions. We deserve to be pierced, but Christ was pierced for them. He was crushed. We deserve to be crushed, but Christ took that crushing And then because the chastisement, the punishment was upon him, we experience peace. And because Christ is wounded for our sins, we are healed. That is, we have fellowship with God the triune, the one that we had offended by our sins. He has laid down his hostility towards us, and we have put aside our hostility towards him. We have friendship and fellowship with one another. And it's all because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And the sin that has wounded us and threatened our physical and eternal death, Christ has taken that himself, and we are healed. We can live with robustness in the presence of God, delighting in his grace and goodness now and for all eternity. And all because Christ was a substitute, a penal substitute for sinners. Because of his penal substitutionary death on the cross, we who had gone astray have now turned back to the Lord and are enjoying the riches of his grace. Charles Simeon was a was a Church of England minister in Cambridge, England, from 
late 1700s to the early 1800s, he served one congregation, Holy Trinity Church, for 49 years. He faced extreme opposition to the gospel because he was one of few in that uh, university town who proclaimed the full counsel of God. And in in one place uh, in his biography, he tells of how he became a Christian. And you you would wonder, what, what Bible passage or Bible book do you think the Lord used to, to bring him out of darkness and into marvelous light? Or you might think it was the book of Romans. That's what the Lord used to, to convert Martin Luther and to give him liberty in the gospel. But it wasn't Romans. You might think it'd be one of the gospels where, where Simeon perhaps was reading about the loveliness and the kindness and the gentleness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power to forgive sins. But it wasn't the Gospels either. What do you think it was? Let me give you a hint. It's the book that you uh, are always bogged down in at the beginning of the year after you try to read through the Bible in one year. It was the book of Leviticus. And what struck Simeon so much in the book of Leviticus was the whole ceremony where a guilty Israelite man would come to the temple and then place his hands on the head of the animal, and then the animal would be slaughtered and the blood sprinkled on the altar. He said the Jews knew that they were transferring their sins upon their offering. And that was what the Lord used to bring him to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, because that's precisely what happens when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God chosen from before the foundation of the world, pure and without blemish. And when we confess our sins and take the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we place our hands upon the Lord Jesus and we say, we have sinned, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And now we transfer by faith our sins and our guilt and our liability to punishment, we transfer them to the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and He, as a kind and gracious Savior, receives them all. And then He goes to the cross and dies the death on our behalf so that we might be reconciled with God and not have to fear His just judgment against sins. That's how Charles Simeon was brought to faith. And that's how each one of us is brought to faith, regardless of what book of the Bible we read or what verse comes and jumps out at us. It's always when we understand what my sins deserve, what Christ has done to take my sins, and when I transfer my sins and their guilt to the head of my Lord Jesus Christ so that he dies in my place, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, what a marvelous thing that God became man. And so though sin was against an infinite God and therefore infinitely sinful. The sacrifice for sin was accomplished by God in the flesh and so infinitely powerful.
We thank you that Christ has done it all, that we need look for no other sacrifice, no other offering, because he has paid it in full by his own death in our place. Oh, Lord, our God, we pray for those who have not yet transferred their sins to the Lord Jesus, who think perhaps that they could take care of it on their own by doing good things or by stopping the bad things. We pray that you would give them eyes to see Christ as the Lamb of God who invites sinners to place their hands upon him and to confess their sins so that they might be forgiven. Hear us, our gracious God, and bless us in this coming week and all that we do, that we would do so uh, knowing that we have been in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and that others might know that we have been with him because of our joy and because of our Christ-likeness. We pray that you would impress upon us more and more the sheer wonder of the gospel of our salvation so that we would live more fully for your praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.